Good morning, and welcome to this time of worship at Houghton Wesleyan Church. Please stand and join me for the call to worship, which is printed in your bulletin. Teach us, Lord, the way of your decrees, that we may follow it to the end. Direct us in the path of your commands, for there we find delight. Turn our eyes away from worthless things. Preserve our lives according to your word. Take away the disgrace we dread, for your laws are good. Holy Father, we come now to this place to worship you. We know that you are beyond our understanding, and we ask today that you would draw us closer to you as we seek to know you more. Amen.
that is a, a great way to begin this service by declaring God to be our vision. It's so great to see each of you as we gather for worship today. We especially want to welcome those of you who may be uh, new to the community or to the church or to the surrounding area. We're glad to have you here and uh, we, we love having you here. Take a moment, share a word of greeting, perhaps introduce yourself to someone around you they may not know as we share the peace of Christ. So there are a lot of things uh, going on today, and sort of new things starting up, and there are inserts in your bulletin kind of hint at that. Uh, we are, uh, it's an opportunity for you to not only engage in worship, but to be involved in ministry. And I've found in my own life that the, uh, the, one of the most effective ways for me to grow deeper in Christ is to give myself in some way to other people. And so there are opportunities for you to be involved with children, youth, adults, uh, serving as well as being served. Uh, next Sunday, small groups begin. There's an insert in your bulletin about that. We'd love to have you be a part of a group. It's another important way of getting connected. Uh, there are also um, opportunities to work uh, in music, in uh, Sunday morning, Wednesday night with uh, children's ministries, just a whole variety of things. And I encourage you to uh, be in thoughtful prayer about how you might uh, engage uh, your gifts and uh, your your love toward other people and helping to nurture one another's faith. Uh, you will also notice that there is a, a, a net, there is an announcement in the bulletin about a couple of uh, special events uh, that uh, we're doing today. One of them is about uh, the um, the refugee jars. And if you were here in May, you you know this. If you weren't, you may not be aware. But uh, back in May, we started thinking more and more about refugees. Uh, they are, in many ways, some of the most vulnerable people in the world. And uh, Scripture speaks a lot about God's people taking care of aliens and strangers and displaced people. And uh, so we, we began a, a process of trying to engage ourselves more with uh, the refugees in the world. There is an estimated 65 million refugees in this world, many of them fleeing their home, most of them for no reason that they have created other than a war zone, some refugees because of their faith in Christ, um, or ethnic difficulties and conflicts. And uh, I just read an article this morning. I saw that the European Union is saying there is this, this room in Europe for refugees is almost closed. And so what's going to happen then? And so there are organizations uh, that, are, that are working with refugees directly, and uh, so we are engaged uh, specifically with World Relief and a new Wesleyan uh, work in uh, Europe, uh, helping uh, through global partners, helping refugees to get connected uh, not only to where they live, but to the church as well. And so uh, 
back in May, we started this, this program with really three things that we're looking to do. One was to educate ourselves about refugees, to think more about it. The other was to pray for them uh, and to ask God to do some miraculous things. And the third was to involve ourselves in giving something to help the work. And so we created these uh, booklets that uh, each week, to just take 10 or 15 minutes a week, and whatever your family unit might be, it might be your home, it might be your dorm room, maybe your apartment, your floor, whatever the case might be, but joining together, spending a few minutes reading through the scripture, thinking about refugees and some, some thoughts about them, and then praying, and then giving just $1 a week. And we created the, put these jars, uh, got these jars for you, and uh, just put a dollar a week in, and... Um, Ask God to bless that. So today, we are collecting all of those funds. And there are baskets uh, around the church as you leave this morning, if you didn't yet get a chance to, to uh, empty your jar into it. But we're not done. So we want you to keep your jar. And we've got new booklets that go through into December. Please pick up one of those. And if you don't have a jar, there are a bunch of them in the back. There's some up here in front. Grab one of those. And we encourage you to be a part of this program of helping refugees uh, throughout the world uh, know that they are loved and cared for. The second thing, beginning this morning, is Christian Life Emphasis Week. And this is a time when every year we uh, think a little bit more intensely about God in our lives. And uh, this year's speaker is A.J. Swoboda. Uh, he's from Portland, Oregon, and pastors a church, also does a lot of teaching in seminaries and colleges on the West Coast. And we're happy to have A.J. here, and uh, his wife Quinn, and uh, son Elliot, and uh, they are part of of uh, this next few days together. And if you looked at the schedule in the bulletin, everything else after this morning will be up on campus, most of it in Wesley Chapel, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday morning, tonight and Tuesday night. Monday night will be in the campus center basement in the coffee area, do something a little bit different. We'd love to have you be involved. If you're a student at the college, definitely you want to be involved. But if you're, you're not, if you live here or in the surrounding communities, we want you to be involved in this because we believe God will use this time to uh, speak into our hearts and our lives. And we're excited about uh, what God is going to do. The Old Testament reading comes from the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 6, verses 1 through 9. These are the commands, decrees, and laws the Lord your God directed me to teach you to observe in the land that you are crossing the Jordan to possess, so that you, your children, and their children after them may fear the Lord your God as long as you live by keeping all his decrees and commands that I give you, and so that you may enjoy long life. Hear, Israel, and be careful to obey so that it may go well with you, and that you may increase greatly in a land flowing with milk and honey, just as the Lord, the God of your ancestors, promised you. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your strength. These commandments that I give you today are to be on your hearts. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get up. Tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. Write them on the door frames of your houses and on your gates. This is the word of the Lord. Please stand for the singing of the Gloria Patri as the ushers come forward. Thank you. 
thankful for all that we have, acknowledging that every blessing comes from your hand. Now we give back to you in a spirit of thanksgiving. Amen. Thank you, choir. What a great reminder of 
the joy that is ours in Christ. I'm convinced that that joy uh, begins with the surrender to Christ. And one of the important steps of surrendering to Christ is just being honest with Him about who we are and the struggles of our lives. And so I invite you to join me in the prayer of confession that is printed in your bulletin. Let us pray together. Almighty God, we confess that we often fail in our calling to be your holy people, a people set apart for your divine purposes. We are often more cynical than hopeful. We are moved more by private ambition than by justice for those who need it most. We dream more of privilege and benefits than of service and sacrifice. We too often try to live in our own power rather than yours. Forgive us, revive us, and reshape us in your image, reminding us that though our sins are as scarlet, in your grace they are made white as snow. Amen. As we continue in prayer together, if you would like to use the altar rail to offer your prayers, perhaps you would just simply like to kneel as you pray today. Please join me as we pray together. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for your blessings in our lives, for, for the joy that is promised to us in Christ. And yet we recognize how often we, we don't experience what you desire for us because we allow so much to get in the way. This morning we pray that you will give us new hearts. That you will give us grace to surrender ourselves to you. That in dying we might find life. We pray, Father, not only for ourselves, but for the needs all around us. We pray for, for those among us who are struggling with grief and loss. We pray for the family of Jill Tyson. We pray for Bill Getty and his family, the death of Bill's brother on Friday night. We pray, Father, for all who are grieving today and ask for your comforting presence for them. We pray for all who are struggling with health issues and with pain that comes from living in this fallen, broken world. We pray for Willis Beardsley and Doris Asepian, for Blanche Weaver and Tammy Dunmeyer, for Luke Heisinger, for Wade Marsh and Shelby Sheldon Emerson, for Doug Bogdan and Barb Rangel, for Bob Jobert and Laurel Buecher, for Bill Getty and for Warren and Ella Woolsey and Phil Muker, and for Mike Raybuck and Bev Rett, for Micah Christensen, Linda Roth, and Dick Gould, for Emily Cricklar, and for all who are on our hearts and our minds today, we pray for your healing grace. Lord, we thank you for the church that 
uh, is so transformative for our lives and opportunities for us to serve one another and to, to love one another and to give ourselves to one another. But we pray not only for this church, but also for the churches around us. We pray today for the First Day Baptist Church in Richburg and Pastor Allen. Pour out your blessing upon this, this congregation, that they would love one another through Christ and they would be, uh, would be beacons of love to their community and beyond. Father, we pray for those who serve you in other places. We pray for the strands who serve you in, in inner city Buffalo and working among refugees and others. And pray that you would give them strength and continue to build bridges into that community. We pray for the the, uh, Seldons as they move from Haiti into ministry in Virginia. Give them grace in all that they do. And Father, in in this broken world of pain and heartache and violence and war, we pray that you would bring peace. We pray, Father, for those who, for our brothers and sisters who struggle every day to live under the threats of persecution, opposition, even martyrdom. Today we pray especially for Asia Bibi, working and living in Pakistan, under arrest, has this appeal in October, maybe the final opportunity to avoid execution. We pray for her and the church in Pakistan and the great struggles that they face and ask that you would pour out your blessing upon them. Pray that you would you would help them to know not only our love and concern, but more than anything, your presence with them. Father, we pray for the refugees of this world. We thank you for the gifts that have been given today, and we ask that you would take our small gifts and be glorified through them and multiply them in a way that would astound us. Bless those who work with refugees, that they would be the presence of Christ, the hands and the feet and the voice of Christ to people who are so needy. And Father, continue to stir our hearts about the needs of refugees. We know that you love them and that you are with them and that you desire to, to, to be present in their lives with them to know that. We pray that you would bring an end to conflicts and wars that make being refugees a necessity. Father, thank you for hearing our prayers today. Thank you for the work you're going to do this week and through AJ and the ministry of, of these next few days. We ask that you would do something special in this community and beyond. That we would look back on these days and say, God did something significant, miraculous, eternal, and we will never be the same. We pray all of this, Father, through our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, the one who teaches us the model for prayer, which we now pray together. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever. Amen.
I don't know why God's wondrous grace to me he has made known, or why unworthy Christ in love redeemed me for his own. I don't know how this saving faith to me he did impart, or how believing in his word brought peace within my heart. But I know whom I have believed and I am persuaded that he is able. He is able to keep that which I have committed to keep that which I have entrusted to him, to him against that day. I don't know how the Spirit moves, convincing us of sin, revealing Jesus through the Word, creating faith in Him. I don't know what of good or ill may be in store for me, of weary days or golden days, until His face I see. But I know whom I have believed, and I am persuaded that he is able. He is able to keep that which I have committed, to keep that which I have entrusted to him, to To keep that which I have entrusted to The New Testament reading is Mark chapter 2, verses 13 through 17. Following the scripture reading, children ages 2 to 5 may be dismissed for children's church. Please stand for the reading of the gospel.
Once again, Jesus went out beside the lake. A large crowd came to him, and he began to teach them. As he walked along, he saw Levi, son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, Jesus told him, and Levi got up and followed him. While Jesus was having dinner at Levi's house, many tax collectors and sinners were eating with him and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. When the teachers of the law, who were Pharisees, saw him eating with the sinners and tax collectors, they asked his disciples, Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? On hearing this, Jesus said to them, It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. My name is AJ. It's a joy to be with you this morning. Uh, I want to thank um, uh, the pastoral uh, team here at the church as well 
I want to thank uh, John, the uh, youth pastor, for picking my wife and my son up at the beautiful Buffalo train station at 1.30 in the morning last night, and for getting us here by 3 in the morning. Um, I don't remember much of our conversation, but if I said something to you that made no sense, I'm not surprised, frankly. Um, but it's a joy to be with you. It's a joy to get to worship uh, Christ with you, my wife. Uh, Quinn and my son Elliot are here this morning, and so they're joining us this as well. And joining us this week, we had the privilege this last four or five days getting to spend some time in New York City. I got to do some things that were very meaningful for our family, and I'm very privileged to be able to share uh, the next couple of days uh, here um, here in, in Houghton. This morning, I want to take a few moments and reflect with you uh, on Christ's call to us to come uh, and follow. And certainly part of uh, the, the conversation that, that I want to have with you this morning really does entail uh, my story. Uh, I want to tell a little bit of, of kind of my, my background and why this text uh, that we read in Mark's Gospel is, uh, has such a gravity, uh, a gravitas, a weight uh, in my own um, walk with Christ. Uh, I was uh, raised in, uh, in Oregon. I, I've uh, been a lifelong Oregonian. I uh, live in the town of the weird uh, town of Portland, Oregon. Maybe you've heard of Portland. Um, uh, Portland is not the capital of the state of Oregon, but it is uh, kind of the cultural center uh, of, the, of the state of Oregon. But I was raised in Oregon, grew up in, in Salem, which is our capital. Um, and I was not raised uh, as, a, uh, as, a, as a Christian. In fact, I was raised in a very sort of nominally, very nominally religious home. Um, Sort of my earliest religious memories were um, very sporadically going to Mass with my mom. I I don't remember a lot about Mass, but I do remember uh, enjoying snack in the middle of the service. Uh, My favorite part of the gathering was this. Uh, this bread and, and wine that I would have, and I, I have come to find years later that you're really not supposed to be eating the snack if you're not a part of the Catholic Church, but I still enjoyed it anyways. Um, that was really sort of the, the, my church experience growing up. Uh, I very nominally Catholic family. I, I had a, um, My understanding of God was very similar to the way C.S. Lewis described God. C.S. Lewis in one of his letters says it's interesting that God in the Bible is never described as a grandfather, uh, but as a father. And for me, as a kid, God sort of was a grandfather. My grandpa lived in Billings, Montana. Uh, He was kind of a little weird, but he was really nice. Uh, C.S. Lewis says uh, that God is not our grandfather, who is senile, benevolent, and distant. Um, But God is actually very close to us. And I I never understood that side of God, Uh, the close side of God, the fact that God was, was near to me. Uh, when I was 16 years old, uh, teenage years are very weird. Uh, when I was in middle school, kind of went through this uh, emotional deconstruction, didn't know who I was. My parents had just gotten divorced uh, a few years earlier. Um, uh, middle school is very hard. People that say that they don't believe in purgatory have never been to middle school. Uh, we do believe in purgatory. It's that weird time between elementary and high school. Very hard years. And then when I was 16 years old, kind of had reached this dark place in my life. <clears throat> and I was sitting in my math class, geometry, in my sophomore year of math class. When these two girls behind me were arguing 
about when Jesus was coming back. They had been reading this book called the Left Behind series. And they were arguing about which Russian president was the Antichrist and why we should never get credit cards because they have the mark of the beast. This was my introduction to Christianity. Uh, I had never thought deeply about the the nature of Jesus. I'd never given much thought to uh, the nature of who he was, what he was trying to do uh, in the world. And so I went home. And I had a copy of the Bible that my father had given to me from college. And I sat in my room and I do what people do when they don't know what part of the Bible to read. I sat and I said, God, I'm going to flip this open. Speak to me. And I sat and I opened my Bible. And for the next two or so hours, I sat and read my Bible. And completely read the book of Leviticus. (laughs) And I immediately closed it and was fully creeped out. (laughs) Closed it and said, I'm going to try this one more time. (laughs) And I went as far right as I could from Leviticus. And I opened to the Gospel of Mark. And sitting in my room at 16 years old, it was today's text. Once again, Jesus went out beside the lake. A large crowd came to him, and he began to teach them. As he walked along, he saw Levi and Matthew, son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax collector's booth. And Jesus said, follow me. Come, follow me. Jesus told him, Levi got up and followed Jesus. I sat in my room, and I read that story. And there was something of weight to Jesus' words. He said, come follow me. It was personal. This wasn't a distant God. This was not some transcendent being who was beyond us. This was a God who was with us. He was with me. A week later, I was driving in my car downtown Salem in my little red monster pickup truck to go play basketball at the YMCA. And as much as I can say to you, I heard the voice of God. I heard Jesus speak to me and say, come, follow me. I pulled my car over weeping and I said, Jesus, I'll follow you, whatever that means. I became a Christian on Commercial Street in 1996 in downtown Salem, Oregon. And I wasn't listening to Caleb or anything. (laughs) This was completely out of the blue. And I've been following Jesus now ever since. It was 19 years since I was 16 years old. I guess that would make it 21 years. My memory is starting to go back. But friends, I say this. Having followed Jesus now for over two decades, I can say with clear conscience and straight face that following Jesus has completely ruined my life. And I don't say that to sort of spark some sort of scandal or um, be edgy. Following Jesus has destroyed my life. Things I thought I would do, the person I thought I'd be, pursuits I thought I'd have. Jesus has ruined me. There's, of course, this rumor in the church that I think is a heresy, this idea that Jesus comes to you and he says, come follow me with the express purpose of improvement of life. As I read the life of Jesus, Jesus was not interested in life improvement. Jesus was interested 
in you dying and getting a new life. Jesus does not come to improve the old life. Jesus comes to give us a brand new one. It is a lot easier to not follow somebody who says you've got to love your enemies. It is a lot easier to not have to follow somebody who says pray for your enemies. It is a lot easier to not follow a God who says care for the poor, the widow, the orphan. It's a lot easier. If you are looking for life improvement, Christianity, following Jesus may not be your best option. Try yoga. But Christianity, friends, the life of Jesus is about carrying a cross. It's about dying. In the next few minutes, I want to talk about how Jesus has destroyed my life. And I hope he destroys yours too. As we look at the story first, I want to point out to you that as Jesus comes to this man, Matthew, and says, come follow me, we find an interesting sort of turn in the story. I'm surprised uh, most of you didn't laugh. I've been told that this is a church that knows its Bible. I've been told. Notice this really interesting transition between verse 14 and 15. In verse 14, Jesus comes to Matthew, the tax collector, and he says, Matthew, come and follow me. And immediately, what does the text say? Jesus says, follow me. Levi gets up and follows him, leaving behind his occupation, his vocation, his job, maybe even his family. We don't know. But he immediately follows Jesus. And then in verse 15, in this very odd transition, even the commentaries don't know how to deal with this. In verse 14, Jesus says, come follow me. And then immediately in verse 15, while Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house. Now how in the world do you go from, come follow me, to now we're eating in your home? And here's my theory, friends. Point number one. When you follow Jesus, you find this to be true. Jesus is constantly inviting himself over for dinner. <laughs> this is my theory. Jesus says to Matthew, come follow me. Immediately, they're eating at Matthew's house. This is what I think happened. They're walking along the way. Matthew's following him now. They're walking. They're somewhere down the road. They're alongside a lake. They're in a forest. They're going somewhere. They're walking along. Matthew is now following. And somewhere down the road, Jesus turns to Matthew and he says, You got any food? I'm hungry. And Matthew's like, Sure. Come on in. Make yourself at home. Jesus is like every single college student I've ever known. You want to know how to reach a college student? Here's how you do it. Houghton Wesleyan Church, you want to learn how to reach college students. You can have programs, that's fine. You want to lead college students to Jesus, here's what you do. You cook them dinner. You make good food for them. You just make a meal, throw your home open. Here's why you probably should start thinking about doing this. Because if, even if you don't invite them over, they're going to start inviting themselves over. College students, they'll show up on your doorstep, having eaten Top Ramen for three years emaciated, gaunt, sick-looking, and they'll stand on your doorstep and just say, hey, hey man, can I, can I just get one home-cooked meal? You want college students to connect to church or start making them dinner. Make them meals. Jesus is like every single college student I've ever known. 
because college students are phenomenal at inviting themselves over for dinner. And you can say, well, Jesus, are you being serious? Does Jesus really invite himself over? Friends, this is Bible 101, the very last book in the Bible, the book of Revelation. Jesus is speaking to his church. And he says, I stand at the door and knock. Anyone who opens and lets me dine with them, I will dine with you. Friends, this is Jesus' entire modus operandi. (laughs) Jesus is saying to us, and I've always thought about that text, man. We often read that text in Revelation. Jesus saying, I stand at the door and knock whoever lets me in. As being Jesus inviting himself into the world. Into, if all, we were just in New York City. Man, if New York City could just accept Jesus then the world could be changed. Man, if my pagan neighbors and non-Christian neighbors could invite Jesus in, what's ironic about Jesus' words in the book of Revelation is when he says, I stand at the door and knock whoever eats with me, dines with me, I will dine with them. Jesus is speaking to his church. What's so scary about that, friends, is even Jesus can stand at the doors of his own church and not be welcomed in. That should scare us all. Jesus says, I stand at the door... And knock. He invites himself in. Jesus will never break down the door. He does not force his way in. Jesus must be invited in. We're uncomfortable with that because for many of us, you know, the, the, I think the theme of what I'm trying to get at is, friends, Jesus is not interested in us inviting him into parts of our life. Jesus wants to be invited into the totality of our life. He doesn't want to just be invited into small little parts. You know, I, I, I think about it this way. You know, we're, we're really good... At saying to Jesus, Jesus, I'll follow you. I love you. I believe in you. And sure, I'll I'll start doing some stuff. I'll stop cussing, whatever you need me to do. Yeah, I'll I'll show up at church every once in a while. You've got it. I might even volunteer on the greeting team. Sure, I'll do those things. But don't you dare ask me to give any of my money away. Don't you dare ask me to stop sleeping around. Don't you dare ask me to do this or that. We're selective. We, Jesus, you can come into these parts of our lives, these parts of our home. Have you ever been invited over to somebody's home who would only let you into the front dining room area, but they will never not let you see the rest of the house? Why? Because they're embarrassed about the things that you'll find in there. Right, you just stay down here. Don't go upstairs. Don't go in the basement for heaven's sake. Have you ever met that person? That's what we do to Jesus all the time. Jesus, you can come in. Just stay away from my bedroom. Stay away from the basement. You can come into the opening, but don't, friend, don't come into the kitchen. Don't come out there. And friends, here's the, the whole narrative of Jesus. Jesus is not interested in part of you. He wants all of you. He wants all of you. And he's going to invite himself over. He's going to invite himself over. Do you notice, friends, there's a unique little sort of detail about the life of Jesus. You know who Jesus was? Jesus wasn't just a really good teacher. 
Jesus wasn't just a really good teacher. Jesus, there was an oomph to him. Do you know what the oomph was? He was God. It's a pretty big oomph. He wasn't just God. He wasn't just human. He was human. He was God. He was not half and half. He was fully and fully. He was a full human being. He was fully God. He was both. And when we say he was God, we're reflecting on John 1, where John says that Jesus, the Word of God, was with the Father in the beginning when he made all things. Do you know what that means? It means this, that when God invented Saturn, Jesus was there. When God made water, Jesus had his hand in it. He made water. Jesus invented water. He was there when they invented Saturn. Have you ever eaten a burrito and been reminded that there is a God? (laughs) Have you ever thought about this? Have you ever thought about the fact that food doesn't have to be as good as it is? God made food good. Jesus was there for the whole thing. He's omnipresent. He's omniscient. He can do all things. He's God. Yet do you find it interesting? A number of times in the Gospels, this omniscient, omnipresent, transcendent God asks to borrow people's stuff. How many times in the Gospels does Jesus borrow somebody's donkey? Or their home? Or their boat? Or that little boy who had a few little fishes and loaves and he borrows it, takes it from a little kid, feeds thousands. Jesus borrows stuff all the time. Why does Jesus borrow stuff? Is it because he can't create it on its own? When Jesus asks the woman at the well, can I have a cup of water? Is he struggling to be able to come up with water? No, he turned water into wine. He invented water. Friends, Jesus borrows our stuff. Because he knows that if he can get to our stuff, he can get to our hearts. Jesus was brilliant. Did you know in any room, Jesus is the most brilliant fellow? In any room, any medical office, any college professor uh, lecture hall, any administrative building, any church, any biology classroom, did you know Jesus is the smartest guy in the room? And that when he says... Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Did you know Jesus knew what he was talking about? He wasn't a fool. And you know what he's saying when he's saying that? Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. He's saying this. He's saying, where your stuff is, there your heart is. And some of us, friends, some of us are having such a hard time understanding. Why is my relationship with God so shallow? Why in the world do I feel like God is distant? Why do I feel like I can't connect at church? Why do I feel like things are not working out? And the last time we wrote a tithe check to God was in the, the Reagan administration. The last time we gave to the poor was years ago. The last time we helped a refugee. Friends, friends, I'm astounded this morning. There are 65 million refugees in our world who have no place to put their head. And we're wondering, why are things, why do I feel so shallow with Jesus? And he's coming to us this morning and he's saying, hey... Borrow some of your money. Can I have some of your stuff? I'm doing something in this world. When we were flying into New York, I was shocked to hear that they still have to say this to people that if the plane is going down and the slides come out, don't take your stuff with you. You know why they have to say that? Because Americans would rather have their stuff and not have their stuff in there. 
older I get, 35 years old, this is what scares me the most. The older I get, the more and more I'm finding that I'm not owning stuff. Stuff is owning me. And Jesus wants us to live, friends, in such a way where he can come up to us and say, hey, come follow me. And we'll say, yeah, you got it. And he can still turn to us and say, hey, can you cook me some food? Do we have room in our homes for Jesus? Jesus is going to invite himself over for dinner. I don't want to stop there. There's one more sort of big point I want to make. And that is that while Jesus is going to invite himself over for dinner, when he does eventually make it, almost always, Jesus will bring somebody that you probably won't like. (laughs) And notice this. Jesus does this all the time. Matthew, we we see in this text that Jesus gets in trouble. What? For who he's eating with? What does Jesus get in trouble for? He's eating with tax collectors and sinners. The Pharisees, Sadducees can't stand the fact that Jesus is eating with the lowest class, the the scum of the universe, that Jesus is eating with them. My friend, uh, Leonard Sweet, He says, that is the point of the whole gospel. If you want to boil the the gospel down, the gospel is this, that Jesus eats really, 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 really good food with really, really, really bad people. That is the gospel. And it's a scandal because Jesus eats with all the wrong people. And not only does he eat with the wrong people, when he eventually comes over to your house, he will bring somebody that you can't stand. Matthew the tax collector. What did you ever thought about? What an unfortunate last name. The tax collector. If any of you work for the IRS, it would be like if you were John the IRS guy. How, how sad is that? To be known for your what, what you're hated for. I mean, that, what an unfortunate last name. But there's a reason they called him Matthew the tax collector. Do you know why they called him Matthew the tax collector? Because he was a tax collector. It wasn't a really bad nickname somebody came up with. It was who he was. And it's the tax collector. You know what the tax collector does in the first century? A tax collector's entire job is to... They're government guys. They collect taxes and take a little bit off the top for themselves and then pass on the rest to Rome. They're big government guys. They're his entire business, his entire well-being, his family's sustenance is living off of people's taxes. And I'm going to say something here that may make some of you want to leave the church. I don't live here, so write a letter to Wes. That's fine. (laughs) Let me put it this way. Matthew, tax collector, he's a big government guy. He's a Democrat. (laughs) And Jesus says to Matthew, come, follow me. But not only that. Unbeknownst to Matthew, look at some of the other disciples whom Jesus called. Jesus also called a guy named Simon the Zealot. What a horrible last name. Why is he a zealot? Why are they calling him Simon the Zealot? Do you know why? Because he was anti-government. He hated the government. He was a small government, if any government, sort of guy. This guy wanted Rome to fall to the ground. He couldn't stand Rome. He was a zealot. He wanted to destroy the thing. He was Tea Party. (laughs) Libertarian, somewhere in there. And what's fascinating to me, friends, is that Jesus calls the pro-government guy, the anti-government guy, and he says to both of them, come follow me, as if to say to you and I, 
church, your politics, they're really cute. They're really cute. But can you follow me? Friends, the church of Jesus in the 21st century, I'm disturbed at how much of the church in the 21st century is not centered on Jesus, it's centered on an ideology. And you and I are not worshiping an ideology. We worship Jesus Christ. And you know what that means? <laughs> it means if you actually knew the people that were in this room, you'd go bonkers! <laughs> you know who you're worshiping with? Here's my prayer for you. I pray that those of, those of you who are Donald Trump will be forced this week to have to love a Hillary Clinton supporter. And I pray for every person in this room who's a big Hillary Clinton fan, man, that you are going to have to have lunch with a Donald Trump fan. <laughs> and here's what I'm going to pray. That you would love your neighbor. Friends, this is so liberating. Jesus never invited us to like our neighbors. He invited us to love our neighbors. And loving somebody is so fundamentally different than liking them. The church of Jesus cannot be centered on an ideology. That's not a church. It's a cult. This is Jesus' Jesus' body. And when he is the center of this place, that means he can draw people from both sides all over the place, even people that don't vote. <laughs> and he can say to all of us, your politics, church, they're cute, but come to me. And Lamont says, you know you have created God in your own image. When God hates everybody that you hate. Have you ever read Jonah? Everybody loves Jonah 1 through 3. There's four chapters in the book. Everyone loves Jonah 1 through 3. You know why? Jonah, this missionary who ran from God, God comes to him and says, go to Nineveh, preach. And Jonah goes to Nineveh, this foreign land of all of his enemies, and he goes and he preaches. And you know what happens? What never happens for us. Everybody gets saved. Everybody turns to God. The text says that he's so effective in his ministry, even the cows repented. <laughs> Read your Bible. It's crazy. Talk about effective ministry. You know that you're doing good ministry when, when cows are getting saved and coming to the <laughs> He preached. Friends, this whole city is, is just turned upside down for Yahweh. We love that story. You ever read Jonah 4? Nobody ever preaches on Jonah 4. Nobody knows how to deal, deal with it. You know why? You know what Jonah does in Jonah 4? He sits under a tree and he weeps to God and he says, God, kill me. And he says, I hate that you even made me a person. And you know why he says that? Because Jonah could not stand the fact that God loved his name. He was a racist. He thought only God loved the Jews. And what Jonah finds out is that God does not just love his own people. He even loves his enemies. You want to know why? I think ultimately every single one of us have in our back pocket right now 
Somebody put it there. It's not really there, but play with me here. There's in your back pocket right now a piece of paper. And that piece of paper is an unpublished list. Nobody's ever seen it. You're the only one who knows. It's an unpublished list of all the people that you hate. And what Jesus wants you to do is he wants you to take that list out and look at it. All the people that you hate. And he wants you to see those people as people who he fundamentally died on the cross for. Why do we love our enemies? We love our enemies, friends, because we were enemies of God and we were loved by him. Why are we your enemies? Friends, we love our enemies. We don't like them, we love them. And what Jesus is inviting us to do, friends, is to stop worshiping our ideologies, to stop worshiping our theologies, to stop worshiping our cute little ideas about who he is. He wants us to worship him. Come. Come. Jesus stands at the door and he knocks. Can we just make him some supper? He's hungry. Let's welcome him in. Would you pray with me? Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the scriptures are inspired. These words work. They reveal the nature of Christ, the Father and the Spirit. And Jesus, we turn, we repent of our false ideologies. God, we repent of being Democrats over Christians. We repent of being Republicans over Christians. We repent of making anything else an idol. And we turn to you, Jesus. And we love you. And we worship you above all things. You are King. You are Lord. Everything will be put under your feet. We worship you. God, would you disturb us and invite people over that we don't like? Would you invite people into this church that we don't like? Would you invite yourself over into our lives and would we cook you whatever meal we've got? You stand at the door and knock, Jesus, we let you in. Come. Come. In the name of Jesus, would you say that?
receive the benediction. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious unto you. May the Lord turn his face toward you and give you peace. Amen.